0: Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. And you guys love me, so you put up with me saying things like this, but I mean it with all my heart. Because we love dads, we're going to talk about Christ today. I said the same thing on Mother's Day. It will be said on Mother's Day next year and Father's Day next year and however many years the Lord gives us together as a church. We have come here today not because we need to learn fundamentally about how to be better dads or moms or wives or husbands or even just better people in general. The main reason we have come here today is because we are in desperate need of what only Jesus can provide for us. And that is the righteousness that God requires. And so let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his help as we now look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as many have acknowledged already today, as needy people, We don't come here, and we certainly do not stand before you in our own merit or in our own sufficiency. If we were dependent upon our own understanding to be able to understand your word rightly, we would be wasting our time and we would be here in vain. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come now, that you would fill me as the preacher of your word so that I might be helpful to these dear people. And we pray for every one of us as we sit under your word, that your spirit would be working in us so that we would have eyes to see the truth, that we would have ears to hear it and hearts that would love it. And so we pray, Father, as we do so often, that as we look to the Bible now, that you would show us yourself within your word, that you would show us ourselves truly from your word and that you would show us our savior. And we pray for these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a a bulletin or, yeah, I guess that would be the only way. And maybe it was up on the screen. It is right now. So there it is. The title of the sermon, What God Requires. What God Requires. That's a massive question. I don't know that there's a more important question that could be asked, given that God created all things, us included. What does the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, our maker, what does he require? And in light of what God requires, another massive question is this. Will anyone meet the test? Can anybody stand before the Lord in light of what he requires of us? In trying to answer these questions, there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion in the world, certainly, about this. God Who he is, what he's like, what he requires. I think that is pretty much understood by everybody here. The world doesn't quite know how to answer that question. But sadly, there's a lot of confusion about this question even in the church. What does God require? And then the other question that flows necessarily from it, will anybody be able to meet the test? This confusion is quite common in our day. And the fallout of that confusion is a big deal. It's substantial. And so we're going to be considering what God requires. And we're going to be considering how anybody, how any fallen human being could ever stand before him as we look to his word today. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do open them up to Micah chapter six, we are making our way through uh, this book of the minor prophet as he is so called. Uh, one of the 12 minor prophets named Micah. Uh, This is the fifth of seven sermons through the seven chapters of Micah. Um, We've been making our way through this now for a few weeks. We've considered a number of things from the book. The one thing I'll say today, just for everybody's benefit, is that the two parallel themes that we have seen interwoven throughout this book are the themes of judgment and redemption. The judgment of God, the righteous and good judgment of God against his people for their sin, interwoven with his promises of covenant redemption about the fact that he will do what he has said he will do in making for himself a people whom he would redeem from their sin and from their bondage. And so today we're going to be looking at a smaller portion of text. We're just going to be looking at the first eight verses of Micah chapter six. So before we go any further, I want to read those verses for us, and then we will begin to consider them together. So Micah 6, 1 through 8, beginning obviously with verse 1. This is the Lord, or excuse me, the word of the Lord. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, Oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day. As to my outline today, I often try to front load it and give it to you on the front end, I did, you know, just to love you so that you know what's coming. Not gonna do that for you today. I think it could be more confusing than helpful. So I'm gonna play it close to the vest There will be a little bit of suspense. You've got to stay to the end. Here we go. I'm going to give you the outline as we make our way through. So this will be the first heading. These aren't necessarily like numbered per se. So there's just going to be a series of headings and I'll try to make them plain. The first heading for our consideration today, the Lord's indictment of the people, the Lord's indictment of the people. We're going to look at verses one through five for just a few minutes together you put your eyes back over on verses one and two, we basically see that the Lord is putting his people in the dock, as it were. The Lord is calling his people to witness, to answer him, to give him a reason for the ways that they have acted and for the reasons why they have done what they have done, and for even the ways that he, they are contending with him that will become plain as we make our way through this. The entire creation will witness this So God is saying, Israel, get in the dock. The entire creation will look on. You see that the mountains and the hills and the enduring foundations of the earth will watch because the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with them. Verse three, we can put our eyes there now. The Lord makes his indictment. My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied You, a couple of thoughts on this. On the one hand, it's rhetorical, right? The Lord is saying, what have I done to you that you would sin against me the way that you have? Your iniquity is quite clear. We've been thinking about that even from the pen of Micah for a number of chapters now. What have I done to you to produce this, to produce this kind of disobedience? But also, it's good for us to keep in mind Israel's history as the Lord makes this indictment against them. At a number of points in the history of God's people, they would accuse God of wronging them. So often, God's people would accuse him and say, why have you done this? Why have you brought us here just to let us die? At least we had meat in Egypt. All of these kinds of things over and over and over. God's people would charge him with wrongdoing. And so he has an indictment against them. What have I done? Did you act the way that you have? What have I done to weary you? Implication, you have wearied me with your iniquity, but how have I ever wronged you? It's a serious indictment and he demands an answer. You see that in your text at the end of verse three. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, the Lord says. Let's move on now to verses four and five. What we're gonna see here is the Lord in one sense defending his own honor and defending the fact that he has done his people rightly. He has treated them well. He has rescued them. He has saved them. He has been nothing but good to them. You can see what he says. First in verse four, he recounts the Exodus in very broad sweeping terms. He tells his people, he reminds them, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and I redeemed you from the house of slavery. Remember, The situation in the book of Exodus, we know that as God's people, Israel, began to multiply rapidly, they were living in the land of Egypt. The kingdom, the empire of Egypt, and the Pharaoh, the leader of that empire, that was the most powerful empire and the most powerful man on planet Earth at the time, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God's people, Israel, lived amongst them. But as they grew in number, We know that the Egyptians, and in particular Pharaoh, became threatened by their growth. And so the people were oppressed. They were put into bondage. They were forced into slavery. They had to work very hard physically. They were treated poorly. They groaned and cried out to God because of their predicament. And the Lord heard them. He had mercy on them. And so he sent Moses, ultimately as his instrument, to deliver them from bondage in Egypt many in the room will know the story of how God through Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh would not do that. So God ended up sending the 10 plagues, the last of which was the death of all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. God spared the firstborn of his own people in the event known as the Passover. And then Pharaoh lets the Israelites go because of this great tragedy that has taken place. And God does nothing less than part the Red Sea so that his people can walk through as on dry land. And then the Lord consumes the enemies of his people in the Red Sea as it closes upon the Egyptians as his people escape. It's quite a story. He's reminding them of that. Look, you think I've done you wrong? You're crazy. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What have I done to you that would cause you to sin against me? I've only ransomed you and rescued you and redeemed you time and time again. So he's going to give them another example in verse five. Not just the Exodus, but also remember my people, the king of Moab named Balak and what he devised. He went to Balaam, who was a prophet. This is recounted for us in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. Balak, the king of Moab, again, an enemy of God's people, goes to the prophet Balaam and says, I want you to curse the Israelites. I need you. You have favor with God. I need you to talk to God and I need you to curse these people. And three different times, Balaam goes to the Lord and the Lord tells him and gives him nothing but a word of blessing, not cursing. And so Balaam goes back to King Balak over and over and over again and says, basically, I'm going to bless the people of Israel because that's what the Lord has said. Even though you want me to curse them, he wants to bless them. That's the point. Over and over again, the Lord has demonstrated that my desire for you, my people, is never to harm you, it's never to wrong you, it's never to curse you, it is to bless you. You can see this so clearly as you look back through your history. And then in the second half of verse five, we read about what happened, the Lord is telling them, look back on what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Well, that is the place where the Israelites would ultimately cross the Jordan River to go into the promised land. From Shittim into Gilgal is the place of the crossing. The entrance into the promised land happened between those two locales. That's a big deal. But then alongside that, we know from Numbers chapter 25 that there was a violation of the covenant that God made with Israel at Shittim. Numbers 25, the covenant is violated. But then in Joshua chapter five at Gilgal, God in mercy renews his covenant with his people. So we see the failure of the people at Shittim, the faithfulness of God at Gilgal in renewing the covenant. All of that is in view as we look at Verse five, the Lord is pointing his people again to his covenant faithfulness and the fact that he has kept the promise that he made to Abraham. I'm going to give you a great people and I'm going to give you a land. The Lord is making good on that covenant. So the Lord is basically saying to his people in just kind of street language and common terms, I've done nothing wrong. I am guiltless. I am upright. Whatever is going on here between you and me, the fault is with you. It is not with me. Let the entire creation witness this. And the entire creation knows what's up, that I am in the right and you are in the wrong. Which brings us to our second heading. Our second heading, will entitle it, The People Respond. The people respond. So we've had the indictment of the Lord against the people and now the response of the people. We're going to look at verses six and seven together. the people essentially in these two verses are asking, what do we need to do to satisfy the Lord? Like, okay, maybe even an admission of guilt. All right, we're wrong, right? That's clear from, they use the words of transgression in verse seven. We're wrong, okay, we get that. But what do we need to do to satisfy the Lord? What's it gonna take? What does he require? Now, I'm always careful in studying scripture and certainly in preaching it, not to read things into the text. And what I'm about to say, I I don't think I'm doing that. As you read the words of verses six and seven in context, it's very clear that the people do not understand the Lord's character. And it's quite clear that they do not understand what the Lord requires. They have no idea about God and who he is and about his righteous and good requirements. There's almost like frustration and exacerbation or exasperation, I should say, excuse me, frustration, exasperation, and even some sarcasm dripping from these verses and oozing out of them. Let's just read them and look at, look at them together in the context. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? That's decent so far. But then verse seven, will the Lord be pleased with, thousand, with a thousand rams, a number of them, A massive number of rams. Will that satisfy his anger? Will that satisfy his wrath? Or with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Or, okay, what about my firstborn? How about I just sacrifice my firstborn child for my transgression? Will that be enough? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. How about my kids? Will that be enough? Burnt offerings, calves a year old, thousands of rams, 10,000s of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn? Will my children be enough? Will that satisfy the Lord? I leave that to you in terms of how you would read the tone with which that's communicated. But at a minimum, at a minimum, a tremendous amount of misunderstanding is, is present. Which brings us to our third heading. We've had the Lord's indictment against the people. We've had the people respond. Now we have the prophet replies. The prophet Replies. So here, Micah is going to respond to the people regarding what the Lord requires in verse eight. We're gonna look at verse eight together for just a few minutes. I'm gonna read it for us. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And he's told you what he requires. Here it is. Do justice, love kindness, that could be rendered love, steadfast love, like love, covenant love, right? and to walk humbly with your God. He has told you what he requires. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before him. It's very clear right on the surface of this that these are heart-level realities. It's not just external conformity that we're talking about here. There's heart-level stuff. It goes far deeper than that kind of External conformity. The Lord is not concerned with sacrifices for the sake of sacrifices. The Lord is not concerned with conformity to some kind of code. He is concerned with the hearts of his people. And that's always been the case. As we read his word, it's clear from the beginning that this has been his concern. A couple of verses to jot down just that make this quite plain. First Samuel 15, 22. 1 Samuel 15, reads this way. These are the words of the prophet Samuel to King Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Proverbs 21, three, we read it today. It goes this way. To do justice and righteousness is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. The Lord cares about our hearts. His requirements, his law, rightly understood, is applied at the heart level. We're gonna be thinking about that more as we make our way through. So I've got our next heading for us. Not clever, I hope useful. I want to give you two critical truths, two critical truths from verses six through eight. So you can just say two critical truths. Number one, again, based on verses six through eight, everything that the people suggest that they could do, right? Their offerings, the calves, the rams, the oil, even sacrificing their own kids, Everything that the people suggest, even if it's hyperbolic sarcasm, it comes nowhere close to being able to atone for their sin. Say that again. Everything that the people suggest in verses six and seven comes nowhere close to being able to atone for their sin. Critical truth number two. Again, from verses six through eight. I'm just going to state it simply and we're going to be thinking about this a lot through the rest of our time. What God requires of us crushes us. What God requires of us crushes us. Nobody has done these things. And I'm looking at verse eight. I'm not looking at verses six and seven. Looking at verse eight. God's requirements, his law, even in the way that it is summarized nicely for us in verse eight, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly. Those requirements are perfect. Those requirements are awesome. Those requirements require of us obedience of the heart, obedience of the mind, obedience of the will. So this is total obedience is what God requires in what he has revealed in his law. Not only is it an all or nothing proposition, like if you break any aspect of the law, you are guilty of breaking all of it. It's James chapter two, most explicitly. This is perfect and total obedience. This is not half-hearted external conformity. This is obedience at the level of the heart and the mind and the will. It is what the Lord requires. So as we think about these two critical truths, that everything that people suggest, it comes far short of atoning for their sin, and the requirements of God crush us. Put your eyes again on verse eight and those three things that the prophet says. God's been clear, here's what he requires. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before him. Those prescriptions and those requirements are wonderful. They're wonderful. Everybody in the room who's been born again, everybody in the room who has affection for God reads those. And says, absolutely. Those are right. They're upright and good. And it needs to be said that verse eight is not the gospel. It's law. Verse eight is not the gospel. It's law. Because a lot of times you hear something like this preached. We're going to get at this more. Verses six and seven are rightly lambasted. For being wrong. God's not going to be satisfied with just your sacrifices. True. But then verse 8 is preached as the means of salvation. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly before God. That's good and that's law. You see, if we could do those things perfectly. Then we could be saved by them. But as it stands, we fall short in our own merit, in our own striving. And we stand condemned under God's holy law, which brings us to our next heading. There's only two more, so just keep keep tracking with me. This heading reads this way. An improper way to preach the law. An improper way to preach the law, Colon. Unfortunately, this is quite common. I've already alluded to this a little bit. Many times I'm dealing with a text, excuse me, like this one. It's rightly said that God cares about the heart. We've already thought about that today. Not just external conformity, not just a written code. God cares about your heart. He cares about your mind. He cares about your affections and your will and your desires. He does. And the obedience that he requires is all of that. But here's the thing. When a text is handled and we say God cares about the heart, amen. He's not concerned about external conformity to to a written code. True. And so you need to do justice and you need to love kindness and you need to walk humbly before God. And if you do this well enough, God will be happy to save you. If you don't do these things well enough, you should be concerned about your standing before God. That's wrong. That's not the way to preach the law. To say if you do this well enough, God will be happy to save you. If you don't do it well enough, you should be worried, is not the right way to preach this. Brothers and sisters, that kind of preaching demonstrates a common mistake of confusing the law and the gospel. It's moralism. It's a kind of works righteousness and it will not save. So now, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. This heading is this. Proper ways, plural, proper ways to preach the law and the gospel. I'm sort of giving you headings to kind of pull the curtain back. I hope it's helpful to you. I don't want this to come across as teaching. I'm hopeful that it's edifying for us as a body, but I want you to, Have your eyes on what's going on here in the text. Proper ways to preach the law and the gospel. Here's the first way that's right to preach the law. We've thought about it some already. Here it is. Just look at verse eight one more time. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God. Do it perfectly. Do it in your heart, do it in your mind, do it in your will, do it in your desires, do it in your affections, and you will live forever. He's told you what he requires. Do it perfectly, and you will live forever. To which everybody says, I'm damned. That's right. The problem is we haven't done that. We have sinned literally against every command that God has given. On the one hand, we've done that because if we've broken one, we've broken them all. But also we quite honestly have broken them all. And even in the ones where we think we're doing pretty well, we have to be real and say, we've never really kept a single one of God's commands in terms of how he requires it. We can't say this enough. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, like you think you're doing well because you haven't had sex with someone who's not your spouse. Think again. The law rightly understood says if you've lusted after someone, you're guilty. You think you're doing well because you haven't murdered anybody. Have you been angry today? Have you been angry this week? If so, you're a lawbreaker. And the bottom line for every one of us in this room is you still sin. You still struggle against corruption. So there's a penalty for a person like you and a person like me. There's a penalty for a lawbreaker. It's called death. There's wrath that we deserve that lasts forever. We're undone before God, who's perfect. He's perfect, and we're so far from it. We're undone in his presence. We're guilty. So how? That's the question now. How can anybody be saved? That's the first use of the law. And then what do we say? We say, oh, guilty sinner, let me tell you about Jesus. He came as there was the first Adam who fell, and in him you did too. You inherited his corruption and his guilt and his shame. And there came another one, a second Adam, who is truly God and also truly man. He lived as a human being for 33 years in this fallen world. And by faith in him, he becomes your representative. As you place your faith and your trust in him, you are now in and under him. He is your representative now. Well, what did he do? How did he represent you for the ones of you who are trusting him? How? He came, right? And he lived a life of perfect obedience. The Lord has told you what he requires of you. And Jesus did it all. He did it perfectly in his mind, in his heart, in his will, in his desires. He never disobeyed. His perfect record. Here's the the scandal. Your record is trash. So is mine. And by faith alone, apart from works, his perfect record is counted to us. Holy smokes, right? That's gospel. Law tells us to do. Gospel says Jesus did it. It's good news. But there's more. There's more to the gospel. That penalty that you owe, that I owe, lawbreakers die. Well, he did that, too. He came and he lived and he died. He didn't deserve to die. He'd never broken the law. So his death was not for his own sake. His death was for the sake of his people. So that that penalty that we really owe, he as our representative paid that. This is what Paul means in Galatians 2.20. That in Christ, I died to the law. It's as though I really died and paid that penalty in Christ. It's over. So I don't owe the law a death anymore. That's gospel. There's more though. That wrath that you deserve, that I deserve. God is indignant and angry and wrathful against sin because he's perfect. That wrath that we should bear forever. Jesus took that too. We sing a song here that everybody loves very much called Jerusalem. We sang it last Sunday. And we sing about what happened at the cross. See him. There upon the cross, now no longer breathing, the dust that formed the watching crowds takes the blood of Jesus. Feel the earth is shaking now. See the veil that separated us from God is split in two. And he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. And God's people say, amen. Praise Jesus that that's true. Through faith, In trusting Christ, we are shielded from the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. And then also, our bodies still are perishing. Jesus was put in the ground on a Friday afternoon and he was there Friday night and he was there Saturday. And then in the early hours of Sunday morning, he got up from the dead. He's alive still. In his resurrection... The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus was vindicated. The father said, son, it's done. It's enough. It's good. That was evidenced in the resurrection. And when Jesus got up from the dead, he rose victorious over hell and over death and over sin. And so by faith in Christ, you too receive the victory. Victory over hell victory over sin, victory over the grave, by faith in Christ as your representative, as your covenant head. All of it, apart from anything that you could ever do, all of it, apart from all of your striving and your willing, completely by faith. That is the gospel, and it's good news. This is how, it's important to understand this too. This is how God has always saved his people. By his grace, through faith in his promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. Always. This book is remarkably consistent. People stupidly, I'm going to use that word and I don't care, stupidly say, well, God saved people one way in the Old Testament And now he saves people in a different way in the New Testament. It's a lie. It's terrible exegesis of scripture. God has always saved his people by grace through faith in his covenant promises. And all of those covenant promises find their yes and their amen and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ alone. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said. It's because Abraham was redeemed. Augustus Toplady's hymn called Rock of Ages is one of my favorites. We're going to sing it actually today to conclude our service. It's as good as about any hymn that's ever been written theologically. It's great. One of the verses that we're going to sing depicts sort of our predicament and our inability to do what's necessary, but then God's faithfulness to save when he writes and we'll sing, not the labors of my hands, can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know if my passion for you was just unrelenting all the time and my zeal never ebbed, it never flowed? Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears for my grief over my sin forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's gospel. But there's more to this right preaching of the law and the right preaching of the gospel. So we thought about the first way that the law is used. It wrecks us. It tears us literally to pieces. And then the gospel is heralded and we're put back together again. We're redeemed. We're safe and we're secure. We're good with God in Christ. There's joy and freedom and rest in him. But we still uphold the law. Paul says that we say that. We uphold the law because it's good, but how do we do it? This is how. This in theological terms is often referred to as the third use of the law, but we're going to do that now together as we look at our text. Quite simply, this way of faithfully preaching the law is to preach the law as the believer's perfect guide for living. The believer's perfect guide for living. The law, it could be said, I'm borrowing these phrases from brothers who are faithful who have gone before me. The law for the Christian is both our perfect guide and our kind advisor. It is our perfect guide and our kind advisor. So put your eyes back on verse eight. What does the Lord require? He's told you, do justice, love, kindness, walk humbly before him. We've already thought about we haven't done it. Christ has done it. We rejoice in that. You sit here safe. And now we look at that and we say, brothers and sisters, let's strive to do justice. Let's strive to love kindness. And let's strive to walk humbly before our God. That's right. And that's good. We're not striving We're not working. Yeah, I'm using that word. We're not working, right, for merit. Not for merit. Not to be accepted before God. All of that has been taken care of in Christ. So this matters. See, this is all about what is it that drives obedience? What is it that drives conformity to the law? Because it's good. It's actually Freedom and safety and security and love and joy and gratitude. Those things drive us now, not because we're working to earn something, not because we're working so that God might accept me. Those things are over. We work and we strive now because it pleases God and we love him. We care that we would live in a way that pleases him. He's not my judge anymore. He's my father now. I love you, father. And I want to live in a way that pleases you. We strive to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly and a hundred other things because it's good for us. I mean, holy smokes, right? Like I don't need to open the Bible to convince you of that even. I don't need to open the Proverbs to convince you that justice is good or that kindness is good. But the humility is good. Those are objectively good things. It's good for us. And then also, I don't know if you've thought about this. Why do we strive after like justice and kindness and humility? Because we can. Because we can. Like we now, we're born again by the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God dwells in us. We have been united to Christ through faith. We have been delivered from the dominion of sin. That's what Romans 6 is about. Paul's main point in one sense in that chapter is do this. Like, don't live in sin anymore. Obey God because you can. You've been united to Christ and you have God's spirit. So, brothers and sisters, let's do justice. What do you say? Let's do justice. It can be hard to do, right? Amen, somebody. Like, this stuff isn't easy for us. We're going to start. We're going to talk about loving kindness in a minute. That's maybe even worse. For many in the room, because if you're like me and you're thinking about loving kindness, it's like, well, I don't know that I've loved kindness that well even today, let alone this week or this year. But brothers and sisters, let's do justice. Let's be upright in all of our dealings. That honors God. We're not shady. We're not manipulative. We're not deceitful. We're upright in everything that we do. We're honest. We're forthright. We don't don't kind of play things real close to the vest and kind of, we don't keep the ace up our sleeve, right? And just kind of slip it out here. We're, We're forthright. We're in that sense, we use discernment, but we're very open in the ways that we live before and with each other. And even before and with our neighbors outside of this church. That's how we live. We don't, here's a big one. We don't ever take advantage of people. Let's do justice. Do right by others. You know, like I do, our natural bent because of our corruption is always to work it for my own gain. Be upright. Do justice. We protect rather than preying upon people who are weak, rather than taking advantage of people who are vulnerable, we actually work to protect those kinds of people. We live life on purpose, protecting the weak and caring for the vulnerable. We do justice. We speak honestly about wrongs that exist in the world. And as we're able, we seek to make a difference. We do justice. Let's strive for those things. But next, let's love kindness or love steadfast love. I mean, we're going to kind of think about both. This can be really hard to do because quite simply, the exhortation is this. Let's be kind to one another. And it's like, well, I'm doing pretty good. I've been kind to people this morning at church. And then my question often to that is like, well, you know, how did you treat your spouse at 11 p.m. last night? Or how did you treat your child this morning at six whatever in the morning? And things are hard. It's like, oh, well, maybe I'm not doing as well as I thought. Let's love kindness. We're kind to one another. We love each other. We seek to show kindness to all people. In other words, quite simply, we love our neighbor. God's law can be rightly summarized in the first commandment and the second that's like it, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then also to love your neighbor as yourself. I was talking with a few people. I mean, this can look any number of ways, right? Just loving neighbor and loving kindness. There's just through... um, where I, where I work out. Like there was a tragedy that happened on Friday night. And I think that this church could have great opportunities to love some of our neighbors in this community in the coming days and weeks, just in practical ways, like taking a meal or whatever it is, right? Like those kinds of things, even though we don't even know many of these people, we seek to show kindness and love to all people. We love our neighbor. This is how we live as God's people. We show love to one another, like we especially show love to those who live within the household of God, right? Galatians 6. But we show kindness and love to all. This is how we live. This is what we do. But then in thinking about loving steadfast love, loving covenant love, part of that means that in the midst of living life together, when it's ugly and messy, and when you're in people's lives and you're frustrated, you continue to point one another, we continue to point one another to the steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus. That's not easy to do. When you're bearing with the sin of your brother or sister in the church, it's so easy to be frustrated and think, you know, we've had this conversation about eight times now. I don't think I can do it, number nine. You know, I pointed this person to Christ like for the last six weeks, is that not enough? Can't I drop the hammer now, you know? and. Of course, there are rebukes and corrections that are required and all of that. I'm not discounting that for one moment, but we continue even in the correcting and the rebuking to point one another to the steadfast love of God in Christ. We live underneath that love. The fact that God has promised to redeem us and he has done it through Christ, it's accomplished. We're good with him now. We live in and under that and we live with one another in a way that's consistent with that. The church should be the safest place in the world. The church should be a haven for sinners. Not where we coddle each other in our sin, but where it is safe to fight against your corruption. That's because of covenant love. It's because of what Christ has done for us and we live in and underneath that. Let's strive for these things. But finally, brothers and sisters, from verse 8, let's walk humbly with our God. Let's walk humbly before our Lord. This means that pride and haughtiness have no place in the Christian's life. What what could we ever be proud of? My sin, my corruption that required Christ coming and saving me? There's nothing to boast in. The way that the Lord has set up salvation, Ephesians chapter two, right, is the gift of God that no man may boast, You know, by grace you have been saved. It prevents our boasting. We're not also like walking humbly before God, before him, we're not self-justifying. And I would say that that transcends just our relationship with him into our relationships with each other. We're not self-justifying. That one, that one gets your pastor. I, I, like many of you, struggle. I want to vindicate myself. I want to demonstrate that I'm in the right in conversations. Or if I've been wronged, you know, especially in the most intimate relationships in my life, I in my flesh want that to be known. Right? We all are like that. Walking humbly before our God entails walking very humbly before and with each other in a way that is not self-justifying. We're not condescending. In the ways that we act with each other or certainly with our neighbors who don't even know Christ. Like if you thought about that, it's right to say something is wrong that's wrong is fine and good. But there's a way that you can say it. And there's a way that you ought not to say it. To expect a person who is not regenerate and to expect a person who has never known Christ for who he is to think and live like you is craziness. Part of our evangelism and part of our witness to our neighbor is loving them and showing them compassion and kindness and being humble before them, knowing that anything we understand, God has done that for us. And our prayer is that, hey, friend, I hope he does this for you, too. Here's another piece of walking humbly before God. We're self-aware. That means that we know who and what we are. So I joke about this sometimes. This is not a joke unique to me. This has been told many times. If you were to ask a room full of people, who in here thinks that you're self-aware? Whichever hands go up in the room, you know immediately those are the least self-aware people in the place. Because when we think that we really know ourselves well, we're, we're kidding ourselves. God, by his spirit, through his law, begins to expose all of our error and all of our corruption. That's one of the ways he uses his law for the believer. It shows me where I'm failing. It shows me where I'm wrong. It shows me where I need to grow. And I know who I am. And we know who we are. Sinners, debtors to mercy, saved by grace. We're wretches who are counted righteous only because of Christ. And we interact with others in a manner that fits that. Here's another part of humility before the Lord is that we are repenting all the time. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is like a life posture. Like what, is, what is it? Repentance is acknowledging what the Lord has said. Here's what's good and right. Here's my, like my right assessment of me. I've failed. And God, one, forgive me for my sin. And two, give me grace that I might not sin. That's a repentant posture. We're all the time over and over and over again, like every day, every hour. We are casting ourselves on the mercy of God in Christ. That's not a one time thing either. This idea that you just decide once to trust Christ is absurd. All the time we are trusting Christ because all the time we're confronted with our own corruption. So our prayer quite simply is Father, I have sinned, forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You are faithful and just to do that. Give me grace that I might not sin. Keep my feet from stumbling, create in me a clean heart. Continue to teach me your ways and lead me in your paths. That's what we pray. So brothers and sisters, let's strive for these things. Let's do justice. Let's love kindness. Let's walk humbly with our God. Thanks be to God for his word, right? His word is awesome. It's consistent. Thank God for his law. It's good. It shows us our sin. It drives us to Jesus and it shows us how to live. First Timothy 1.8. It's a great verse. Paul says, now we understand that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right on, bro. We understand that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And I would contend that what we've been doing today is using the law lawfully. We're looking at what God requires. We're driven because of our sin and our failure. We're driven to Christ. And then now that we've been accepted and cleansed and justified, we then say, okay, let's look back at that law and let's live like that. That's what we do. Thank God most especially for Christ and the good news of redemption through him. The great news, friends, I mean, if you think about the sermon title, What Does God Require? If you're gonna leave here with one thought today, just rejoice in the fact that what the Lord requires, he has provided for you in Jesus. As Augustine said, Lord, require what you will and grant what you require. Command what you will and grant what you command. That's what the Lord has done in Christ most specifically and awesomely. I leave you with these words, friends, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as we so often acknowledge, just as needy now as we were when the sermon started. We pray, God, that through your word that we have learned some things, that we have been affected and stirred, that we've even been changed in our thinking or in our feeling and our affections. It is my prayer, Father, that you would use the preaching of your word to sustain and strengthen our faith. Pray that you would use the preaching of your word to continue to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Christ and for what he has accomplished for us. We thank you for your law that is good and wise. Continue to work in us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.